0: I was reading a story this week by a pastor who was reporting on the fact that researchers at the University of California, San Diego, just some years ago, produced a study showing that people and their dogs often look alike. In the study, a panel of student judges was able to match 16 out of 25 purebred dogs to their owners. The reason for this, researchers say, is because dog owners tend to choose a pet Bearing their resemblance in some way. Don't ask me; I don't know. The panel didn't do as well matching mutts. And uh, one of the researchers explained this because owners select dogs with the knowledge of what an adult purebred will look like. Since there is no guarantee about the eventual appearance of a mutt, it becomes more difficult to pick a dog that resembles you. <laughs> The study identified similarities between te- pets and people as physical characteristics or personality traits, or both happy, outgoing, and affectionate dogs, tend to be owned by warm and friendly people. Hairless, pop-eyed Pugos, Pooches, well, yeah, you know where that might go. This writer said, you know, a quick evaluation of my own border collie brought mixed results. She's good-looking, obedient, and in shape. This momentarily boosted my self-esteem. But there were other troubling signs. It wasn't the hairiness, shameless begging or doggy odors that bothered me. It was the realization that my dog tends to be grumpy and snarly when she's told to do what she's she's told to do doesn't match what she wants to do. And then I remembered with some delight that technically the dog still belongs to my daughter. (laughs) However. He went on to say, this story made me wonder about something else. If I stood in a group of people from all religious faiths and belief systems, would a panel of judges be able to match me up with Jesus? Seems to me an excellent question. Do I match up with Jesus? Do you match up with Jesus? When people think of Jesus... Do they think of you? Do they think of me? As we return to our study of Acts this morning, I think this is a good question to keep in mind. I've suggested, do you remember, as we have launched into Acts 2 as sort of our primary text for this study, it's a picture of the early church in Jerusalem. It's also, though, I think a pattern of life and a pattern that that shows the values that not only that early gathering of believers in Jerusalem had, but I believe that it shows values that God intends for His people to have, values that transcend time, values that transcend culture. It's a place where the life that goes on Theoretically, the life that goes on in life of the church is somehow linked up or matched up, if you will, to the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's quite likely that many of those who were part of that Jerusalem body, that Jerusalem gathering. Many of them have been with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. They had lived with Jesus. They had spent significant time. And so let me just read again as a reminder this text, this uh, overarching text for our study together. They, Luke records for us, they being the believers in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone, I love that word. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. And they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as that person had need. And every day, they continued to meet together at the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It is the devotion of that early church that has been our jumping off point into this series. We are told in this text that Those believers in Jerusalem, that early church, they were devoted to four specific things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. That meant life together. The fellowship is how Luke describes it. They were devoted to breaking of bread. We'll get to that in another couple of weeks together. Breaking of bread could very likely have been the meals that they shared together. But we mustn't forget as I mentioned, these folks have been with Jesus. And when they came together to break bread, they knew the words of their Lord. They knew what breaking bread meant, its significance in their lives. And they were devoted to prayer. By God's grace, my prayer has been all along that that we might begin to develop a better understanding of what it means to be devoted to these things So that we might experience the kind of life and and energy that's, that's described in this passage. You know, you don't have to raise your hand, but I just wonder, do you read this and go, wow? Or do you read this and go, whoa? That's a little scary. Either response would be appropriate. Because it is the work of God amongst people. It is divinity at work in the frailty of humanity. And I believe that as a result of their devotion to those four things, God was actively, powerfully moving in their midst. And, and I, I think, frankly, I think it's the explanation for that final verse. Verse 47, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Their lives were transformed by the Spirit of God and people We're drawn to that. Is that just not the coolest form of evangelism you can imagine? Kind of takes the heat off, doesn't it? You know? They were just living a life that was committed to one another. To the apostles' teaching. To the the focus and centrality of Jesus and to prayer. And God just blessed that community with all kinds of new life in Christ. By the way, this is one of those, those trivia things that uh, you didn't come for, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Do you know that new churches, churches that are just starting, churches that are, are brand new, did you know that they're the most evangelistic churches in America? Across the board, denominationally, it does not matter which denomination you choose, when a church plants, when a church begins... And oftentimes there's a process that uh, they build up to what is sometimes referred to as their their grand opening celebration, if you will. Um, Those churches are the most evangelistic churches in the country. They are out telling people, come and be a part of what we're doing. For three years. And then they quit. It seems to be that at the three-year point, there is sort of a, an entry, if you will, into the comfort zone. Ah, oh, this is good. I like who we are here. This is, this is nice. This is cozy. And uh, there seems to be a distinct falling off of a fervor for reaching people. And we're just talking friendship evangelism. You know, come and be a part of what God is doing in our lives. We'd love to have you join us. For three years. And uh, then the fervor dies out. Now, if you want proof of that, ask yourself, when's the last time I asked somebody to come and worship with me at Applewood? Me too. Isn't that sad? I think that's why this study is so critical for us. We want to be a church, don't we, that is seeing others come and join in this life that God has given us together and especially if they don't know Jesus. Especially if they don't know Jesus. Whoa, you are excited about this? I can tell. We want them to come and experience what God is doing in our lives, do we not? So that Jesus rubs off on them? Whoa. Take your fingers and put them right here and see if your heart is beating. So, this is why we have spent significant time together so far on the truth of Christian community. That is, that is the fellowship that Luke records here. The fellowship that they were devoted to, those early believers. We've talked about God's purpose in bringing us together as His people. We've talked about the witness that a healthy family-like community of believers is. We've talked about Jesus praying for unity among his followers. Why? Because that's the greatest witness that there is for who Jesus is. We've talked about the nature of God as community, the original community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where does the idea of community come from? Why is it so important? Because it is the character, it is the nature of our God. And understanding that that need for community, that, that we cannot be complete, fully devoted followers of Jesus on our own. But boy, we try, don't we? That is just who we are. We, we are trying. And the truth, the truth that we've also seen that, that the enemy will work hard, the enemy will work very hard at distracting us and, dis- and, and, and drawing us away from involvement in community, convincing us that it's just another choice in a life full of choices, and it's not, my brothers and sisters. Community is not just another choice. Involvement in the lives of believers, knowing them well and them knowing me well and, and all of the richness that comes out of that, that's not just another choice. And if we relegate that to another choice in our busy lives, we've bought the lie. We have bought the lie. It is, in fact, it is a life-giving activity like nothing else if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It just is. So this morning and next Sunday morning, I want to consider um, a couple of, of essential markers, if you will, of health in Christian community. Just, just one this morning and then another one next week. And neither of them is is, uh, is very profound. You are going to think, "Ah, oh, this is, once again, Christianity 101. And yet, as simple as they are, I am not confident that either of them is practiced very much amongst God's people. So, Let's stand and we're going to read our text for this morning from first Peter, chapter one and see if we can uh, pull this first marker of, of, of healthy community out of these words that that Peter has for us. Let's read together. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming as obedient children. Who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And my brothers and sisters, the word that was preached to you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, we just heard Peter exhort these believers, wherever they are, we don't know anything about the recipients. We just know from the beginning of this letter that they are God's people. They are strangers in the land where they're living and they are scattered everywhere. Probably persecution. But he says to these believers... Be holy. Ask your neighbor, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Go ahead. See what they say. What do you think? What does it mean to be holy? Anyone? Christlike. Okay. Good. Set apart. apart. Good, Mark. Yeah. Christlike. Set apart. What else? You didn't talk about this, did you? (laughs) Okay. Okay. In that matching game, Karen says, you could be drawing the line to Jesus. You know, Barna and his uh, pollsters surveyed America three or four years ago. They found out that, uh, that Americans are a little baffled by the concept of holiness. They said that three out of every four Americans believed that it is possible for someone to become holy regardless of their past. But only half of the adult population said that they knew someone they considered to be holy. And that's more than twice as many who consider themselves to be holy. <laughs> now, the views of those who identified themselves as Christians... Well, they weren't much different than the national averages, according to Barna. Among believers, three quarters, 76 percent said it is possible for a person to become holy regardless of the past. However, slightly more than half of the group said they knew someone they would describe as holy. And roughly three out of ten Christians said that they themselves were holy, which is marginally more than the national norm. What does it mean to be holy? The original language uses just a very simple word. Mark referred to it. Separate. Holy means to be separate. Holy means to be different. Holy means to be set apart. The idea of holiness, of course, draws its meaning from the character of God who is holy. So Peter states, just as he who called you is holy... He being God, just as God is holy, so be holy in all you do. Simply put, holiness means be like God. So what is holiness? It's being like God. Oh, and did I mention that this is an exhortation? This is a commandment? You don't have a problem with this, do you? Holiness, no problem, here we go. The first essential marker of the two that I want us to talk about in these two Sundays together. first essential marker of health in a community of believers is what I call grace-filled accountability. Grace-filled accountability. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word accountability. I know where my mind goes. My guess is is that that for many of us, the associations that come to mind are the very reasons why healthy, life-giving, grace-filled accountability does not happen more in the context of Christian communities. You see, for years and years, God's people were famous and in some circles still are for having lists that entailed all the things that Christians do and don't do. Christians don't smoke and they don't drink and they don't chew and they don't hang out with people who do. And then we occupied ourselves with important tasks like adding do's and don'ts to our lists. By the way, those things that were oftentimes addressed on those lists Uh, They weren't clearly addressed in scripture. So praise be to God, we were helping them out. We were clarifying the activities of a holy person, defining clearly how how Christians ought to live. And then then we would impress the non-Christian world by battling over the items on our lists. And of course, if you were smart, You would incorporate my list into your life because my list is right. My list is what God has in mind. I don't know what you think of when you think of accountability, but that's not it. That's stupidity. And yet. We have spent a lot of time as Christians over the years doing that very thing. And ironically, it drives non-Christians away from Jesus. Can you imagine? The simple definition of accountability is to give an accounting. Definition of account is a reason given for a particular action or event. When I use the word accountability, I'm thinking along the lines of a process or an activity of calling and encouraging and exhorting and reminding one another to be more like Jesus. Based upon Peter's exhortation to be holy, why do you think that Jesus is the standard for holiness? Because what? Because he's the only one. In our Trinitarian theology, we believe that Jesus is... Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, holy too. Yeah, At least you're supposed to believe that. If you don't, we're burning you at the stake after the service. (laughs) If holiness, my friends, if holiness is being like God, then we need to get the right standard before us. And that right standard has been revealed to us. That is Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 1. We've studied that text in the past. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I don't have any idea what that means. And neither do other commentators, if they're honest. But what it does mean is, if you really want to know who God is, look at Jesus. Jesus. It's not look at Jesus and consider these other things. It's start with Jesus. It is a Christocentric theology. It is a Christocentric hermeneutic of the Christian life. You really want to know who God is, the character of God, and understanding him as best as our little finite brains can, then you look at Jesus. Christian accountability is about asking one another how it is That we are becoming more like Jesus in our daily living. And it's grace-filled. It's grace-filled. It's not, so, Lynn, are you growing like Jesus? (laughs) It's, Lynn, tell me about your life with Jesus. Tell me about what's going on. Jim, tell me about what you're learning from our Lord. Tell me how that's impacting your life on a daily basis. That, my friends, that is grace-filled accountability. That is not coming with an agenda. That is not coming with a list. So often we think in terms of accountability as starting with my checklist and making sure that this person measures up, when in fact accountability is starting with Jesus and asking how are we measuring up to Him And the standard that he sets before us. Okay, second neighbor question. Here we go. You ready? How was Jesus different from the accepted norms of his day? Go ahead. How was Jesus different from the accepted norms of his day? (laughs) That's true. All right. What are, what are some ways that, that you and your neighbor have identified how Jesus was different? What do you think? He didn't pay attention to the list of the day. Boy, didn't that just burn some people, though? He wasn't a list keeper. What else? It taught with godly authority. Yes, yes. Andrew. Oh, that's great. Did you hear that? He knew the law, but he wasn't a legalist. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Cheryl? Well, no, oh, man. He did. Not again, just really caused some discomfort, didn't it? For some folks who, for... Certain categories of people they were on the list. But I'll stay in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good words. It would, would it seem safe to say it? It's almost like he, he resisted those things that are sort of normal to the, to the heart's condition of, of every person. Yeah, good. that value you down. Good, good. Doug, were you gonna say something? He was homeless. Yeah. That's troubling. He was homeless. All right, anything else? Good observations good observations and, and, and sort of takes us to a place that I think we all know exists, but, but we'd rather just not spend too much time there if we don't have to. It's becoming, my friends, it's becoming more like Jesus in our thinking and our actions, ultimately, that will call attention to who jesus is you know when jesus told those early believers you'll be my witnesses go into the world go into the world and 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 be my witnesses make disciples well you can be sure that they went into the world and they they described a jesus who they many of them had just been with and for whom Jesus had impacted and changed their lives in such a way that I think it's safe to say that, that for many of them, they, they looked, looked in terms of, of observation, hearing, listening to them a lot like Jesus in terms of his, his value system and, and what was important. Opportunity for people to see Jesus in the flesh. Through our lives, so let me point you to what I call four, what I think of as uh, four engaging phrases, if you will. Remember, this is this is under the category of grace-filled accountability, grace-filled conversation that 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 fof, fosters healthy, uh, life-giving accountability. It's not judgmental. It is. It is loving and is grace-filled. And I'm going to go over these quickly and I'm going to, I'm going to leave them with you this morning and ask that you would, you would think a little bit more about them. And we'll, we'll come back to them again a bit uh, next week. But in our text this morning, our first phrase is found in verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Remember what we've always said about that word, therefore. When you're reading along and you discover the word, therefore, you've got to ask why it's therefore. And and, and what Peter has been talking about up to this point is he's been talking about this amazing salvation. It's the context of a response to salvation that we've received that, that he describes as so amazing and so wonderful that in verse 12, he says, he says, angels. Long to look into these things. Angels long to, to understand it. Angels long to, to get it. Peter says, this is an amazing salvation that we are recipients of. And so this admonition to, to prepare your minds for action is to think correctly about what it is that God has done for us. Like Romans 12, living sacrifices. We've talked about that over the years. And then he says a couple of things. This correct thinking, this preparation of your minds for action, it includes being self-controlled. Originally, that uh, in some of the oldest texts that we find those words used, it meant to refrain from excessive wine, which of course would lead to drunkenness. But, but it's a phrase that really comes to be used throughout all of the New Testament in talking about a life that is lived soberly, a life that is lived with an honest assessment of who I am, that is, it's a life that that shows sound and reasonable judgment about all areas of life. He says, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you when Jesus is revealed. Notice he didn't say just set your hope a little bit. Set your hope occasionally when you have a little extra time. Set your hope fully, overboard, fanatically so, on the grace that is to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is the fulfillment of our salvation and the joy of being with our Savior. Somebody could say an amen to that if you wanted to. Again, overwhelming excitement. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Peter explains be self controlled and Think often. Think all the time. Let the hope that you have in Jesus and the joy that stands before you dominate your thinking. A second phrase that he uses, verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Living in ignorance is a referral to to, to living without Christ. Living before you were a follower of Christ. That is before you knew about Christ and the love of God made known to you through Him. Do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. That is to make life about yourself and to live life for yourself. And then it flows right into that exhortation to be holy, to be like Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It's 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 quite a juxtaposition that he puts there. Don't live like you did when you were ignorant. Be holy. Live like Jesus. Don't live like you did before you knew Jesus. But now that you do, live like Him. Live like Jesus. There's a third phrase that he uses in verse 17 where he says, Live your lives as as strangers or as, as foreigners. Since you call on a father who judges these persons' work impartially, live your lives as foreigners in irreverent in fear. If you grew up singing that old chorus, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Not a Swiss bank account, but somewhere beyond the blue. Do we ever in our conversations with one another... Engage thinking about heaven and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus of heaven. Heaven is a pretty important theme in in Scripture. Are we excited about it? How does the stuff of this world compare to what we find in Scripture about heaven? For instance, Lee. Lee, tell me about your excitement to be in heaven. Or, Ellen, tell me about what it means to you to know that you have hope in Christ for all eternity. You ever ask one another those kinds of questions? Those kinds of questions are statements that lead to grace-filled accountability. Accountability is just is just giving an accounting of something. Well, gosh, if somebody asks me that, maybe I haven't thought about heaven and I don't have a good answer. Well, it's time. It's time to think about heaven. It's time to learn and to grow and to become excited about that. And then finally, there's a fourth phrase, verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from this empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, lamb without blemish or defect. Costly. Peter is saying, there is a point of conversation among God's people to be reminded to be in awe of the costly nature of of salvation is Jesus death a big deal to us Wow, is his suffering and his agony a big deal to us you know when when Mel Gibson's movie came out years ago the passion of the Christ when it was released in Italy the review board there gave it a G rating some parents objected saying that the movie was was too violent for children to watch But the reaction of of Italian author Riccardo Zaccuni, quoted in USA Today, was, was interesting. said maybe something more about theology than parenting. He said he refused to allow his children to see the film because in his words, I want them to have this idea of the spirituality of Christ, not this idea of debauchery. The soul of Jesus is important, not his body. Really? The writer preferred to have his son watch The 30-year-old film, The Gospel According to Matthew, he said it's very deep and you don't see a drop of blood. He said he was planning to go and to attend the movie himself. I think I will shut my eyes to preserve myself from all this blood. My friends, the blood of Jesus, Scripture tells us, is what cleanses us from sin. The blood of Jesus is the basis of the new covenant so as we think about being God's people together, the community of God's people, a a healthy community, I want to encourage us to think in terms of these phrases that lead to a blessed accounting for one another, preparing our minds, being self controlled, focusing on on the grace of Christ, living as obedient children not living for ourselves and as people who, who don't know God, but striving to be like Jesus. Living as strangers, foreigners in the land, because in fact we are. Being reminded as we converse with one another of the great price that was paid for our salvation. Peter, in all of his writings in this book, uses the plural pronoun, you. It's never an individual thing that he's talking about here. He's talking about you, God's people, gathered together in this particular place. You remember these things. You talk about these things. You celebrate these things. You live these things out together. There is blessing in asking and there is blessing in responding. There is healthy, life-giving accountability that flows, I think, out of conversations like this. You know, if we don't ask one another, who's going to? We are the ones that are involved in one another's lives by virtue of being God's children together. We encourage and call for growth, grace-filled accountability in one another's lives. Amen. Praise to Why don't you come on up? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit and thank you for your patience. Lord, we pray. We pray for uh, a response to your Spirit in our lives that that causes us to be people in this community and this fellowship together who engage one another in important conversation in grace-filled ways that encourages us and prods us And pushes us lovingly towards becoming more and more fully devoted followers of Jesus. Holy people. Amen.